So this is a course on J. Gresson Machen and the Presbyterian controversy. Um, and it's a little bit odd for me, in a way, to be doing this because I've been <laughs> working on Machen for 40 years now. So it's, uh, it's actually more than that. I first read Machen's Christian Christianity and Liberalism, 1981, fall of 1981, at Harvard Divinity School, of all places. Um, William R. Hutchison, the great scholar of Protestant liberalism, assigned Machen in the course because he also talked about Machen in two of the books that he wrote about liberalism as one of liberalism's great foes. So he had a lot of respect for, for Machen, and that's where I began to think about this. But it's been going on for a long part of my life. But this course is not about me, although it is my my take on Machen in some ways. So I want to start off with thinking about why we remember Machen or how we remember Machen. Uh, he was an accomplished biblical scholar, um, maybe not the leading one of his time, but certainly one of the better ones, especially with books like The Origin of Paul's Religion, written in 1921 or published in 1921, Virgin Birth of Christ, published in 1930, which he regarded as his magnum opus. Um, he was a respectable faculty member at Princeton Seminary. He taught there from 1906, first as a lecturer, and then uh, until 1929 when Westminster Seminary started. Um, but part of the reason why we continue to read Machen, think about Machen, and I have to be careful not to say Mencken, because I have... I have written a book about H.L. Mencken. They were contemporaries. They were both from Baltimore. They actually thought about a lot of things in a similar way, even though they came from different sides of the tracks in Baltimore. Um, and I was recently speaking about Franklin, and I kept saying Mencken at times. So I have to be careful about this. But Machen is what we were talking about. But without the controversy, we would not remember Machen. I'm pretty convinced. He would be someone who would be read. He wrote a New Testament Greek grammar that I don't know if it's still as widely used as it once was. I used it when I was in seminary. And I think his books uh, on, on Paul and the virgin birth are still signed, but it's not the cutting-edge scholarship that it once was. Um, and one way of thinking about how we remember people even when we think about uh, presidents of the United States, the ones that stand out are ones that were connected to a crisis or controversy. Um, of course, George Washington, the founding, accomplished general during the Re Revolutionary War, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Civil War. When, some, when a crisis comes on the scene, a president has to rise to the occasion. FDR with the, with the Depression and, and World War II. Um, even George W. Bush, which was, who was not necessarily going to be considered a great president with 9-11 happening on his watch, a whole lot of uh, events, circumstances flowed from that. So presidents rise to occasions and people oftentimes rise to occasions during conflicts and controversies, and that's, I think, one useful way of thinking about Machen, and it is how we remember him. We rem remember him 
mainly as a fighter. Now, there are different ways of regarding his fights, his controversies. Within the OPC and the reform world, NAPARC world, um, it's easier to regard that fight as being legitimate because he, he opposed theological liberalism. For people in the mainline church, though, and we'll get into this later on in the course, but um, it, it's, it's not always the case that they thought Machen really had a reason to fight because really what was the controversy something that he created in his own mind or was there something legitimately there? Um, one of the people from the mainline church who wrote a book about the uh, Presbyterian controversy, although he called it the broadening church, this was Lefferts Letcher who taught church history at Princeton Seminary. Um, this is he wrote a dictionary article for the what was then the uh, standard biographical dictionary of American figures. Um, and this is how he concluded his article, which is probably 500 words long. Um, he said, Machen, he wrote, Machen was of medium height with dark hair and dark eyes, often lighted with a half shy but hearty smile. I'm not sure if that bears out on the image behind me on the wall. Letcher goes on to say, Machen was sure of the correctness of his own objectives and often impatient with those who could not agree with him. His transparent sincerity and self-abandoning commitment sometimes evoked heroic responses. He was trying to be generous, but he also has that notion in here that I think a lot of people ha who have thought about Machen thinks that he was really committed, zealous, but did he overdo it? Um, and one of the examples of that, especially you see this more in the evangelical world, um, even about the same time that Letcher was writing for this biography, E.J. Carnell, who was the president of Fuller Seminary in the 60s, I believe, 50s or 60s, and Carnell was one of the young young intellectuals of what was then called neo-evangelicalism, although he was it eventually became evangelicalism. But this is something that um, Carnell wrote about Machen, and this is a reputation that has stuck with him. So he said... He wrote, Machen was an outspoken critic of the fundamentalist movement. He argued with great force that Christianity is a system, not a list of fundamentals. The fundamentals include the virgin birth, Christ's deity and miracles, the atonement, the resurrection, and the inspiration of the Bible. But this list does not even take in the specific issues of the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholicism easily falls within the limits of fundamentalism. So, Carnell, to his credit, distinguishes Machen from being a fundamentalist, and something that I've tried to, uh, argument that I've tried to make over the years, that Machen is not regarded well as a fundamentalist, but better as a Presbyterian. But then Carnell goes on, while Machen was a foe of the fundamentalist movement, he was a friend of the fundamentalist mentality, for he took an absolute stand on a relative issue, and the wrong issue at that. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, he goes on, Machen gained prominence through his litigations within the Presbyterian Church USA. He contended that when the church has modernists in its agencies 
and among its officially supported missionaries, a Christian has no other course than to withdraw support. So Machen promptly set up the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, and with equal promptness, the General Assembly ordered the board dissolved. Machen disobeyed the order on the convictions that he could, he could appeal from the General Assembly to the constitution of the church, but this conviction traced to ideological thinking. For if a federal system is to succeed, supreme judicial power must be vested in one court. Um, Carnell, what's striking about this so far with Cornell, Carnell actually, is that there has been for the last 20 years a notion made popular by Professor John Frame, who taught for many years at Westminster, Philadelphia, Westminster, California, and finished his career at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He wrote an article about 20 years ago called Machen's Warrior Children, that, which tried to argue that Machen was right to fight liberalism, but that Machen's followers then engaged in a lot of controversies that sort of whittled the movement down to a, a very small group. But Carnell is making the point here that Machen himself was one of his own warrior children, that Machen was, was absorbed too much within this controversy, and, um, and someone who was taking the law into his own hands as, as if he were a kind of vigilante. Uh, Carnell goes on to say, Machen became so fixed on the evil of modernism that he did not see the evil of anarchy. This fixation prompted him to follow a course that eventually offended the older and wiser Presbyterians. These men knew that nothing constructive would be gained by defying the courts of the church. Perhaps the General Assembly had made a mistake, but until the action was reversed by due process of law, obedience was required. I don't recall what denomination Carnell was in, although I think he was trying to minister in the PCUSA for a time, as many Fuller Seminary faculty were. But if Carnell knew much about the history of Presbyterianism, that's not exactly the way that Presbyterians would think about church law and appeals to constitutions, etc. There are all sorts of mechanisms in Presbyterian church government for appealing decisions. Um, and it's also the case that it's not as if Machen was quick to form an independent board, as we will see. It wasn't until 13 years into the controversy that Machen actually took, this, took the uh, unusual step of creating an independent agency for Presbyterian foreign missions. So this is all a way of thinking about how we remember Machen, and we remember him as a fighter. So it's useful to think about the ways in which he, he fought, what he fought, which is what we'll try to get into over the course of this lecture series, but also trying to think about um, what prepared Machen to fight, which is, uh, will be the topic for an, another lecture here. But in thinking about fighting, um, and this is something that's come on the radar, radar recently, which has to do with the worlds of evangelicalism and the ways in which evangelicals, conservative Protestants, relate to the world. Aaron Wren, who is a, um, 
an entrepreneur of a kind, a think tank scholar. He writes sometimes in uh, magazines. He used to write for the City Journal, worked for the Manhattan Institute. Very thoughtful guy, uh, not trained theologically, but picks up a lot um, and has useful insights. He recently wrote an article for First Things magazine on the three worlds of evangelicalism, and he, he pointed out um, that there were three developments. There was a positive world, a neutral world, and a negative world. The positive world is the world of evangelicalism before 1994. And th in, this, in this world, society at large retains a pos mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good, church-going man remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. And again, this is all happening before 1994. And to make some sense of that, for anybody who remembers the presidency of Bill Clinton, he, there were images of Clinton going to church, carrying a Bible. So that would bear Wren's point out about being a Christian was considered a positive thing. Between 1994 then and 2014 is this next era, the neutral world. Here society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but is not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. And it's interesting that uh, Wren makes the point that this is the era when Tim Keller developed his ministry in New York City, especially as an apologist. And Wren makes the point that Keller may have really picked, picked up well on the moment of be presenting Christianity in a kind of neutral era of um, American history. But then negative world is the world of 2014 to the president. And he writes, society has come to a negative view of Christianity during this period. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. And what's curious about this dating, too, is that it's not simply a Trump phenomenon that drives this. 81% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, voted for Trump, we repeatedly heard after the 2016 election. But this is happening before 2014. It's happening, I mean, before 2016. It's happening in 2014, and Wren works this out. But this is a useful perspective to keep in mind for this. And another layer on top of this, um, the ways of thinking about Christianity in relation to society, American society in particular, is uh, something called the Benedict Option. Rod Dreher, um, a journalist who's written a lot of best-selling books, who has created a niche for himself with some very thoughtful things, sometimes in my estimation a little hysterical, but he wrote a book called The Benedict Option. And this is a book that came out roughly 2015. And it was a he, his point was that Society had become so bad that Christian and Christians could not rely on the major institutions of society that they might need to withdraw and form their own institutions. Um, 
and and Wren fits Rodrier into this negative world as an example of Christians figuring out other ways to relate to society, but Christians especially thinking about ways to perpetuate the faith, perpetuate their families, perpetuate their congregations in this negative world. And the Benedict option for Dreher harkens back to Benedict of Nursia, the, the founder of the Benedictine monasteries. And, you know, the idea, the image of a founding a monastery doesn't quite make sense for passing on the faith to children because monks typically are celibate, as are Roman Catholic priests, so, but it had a certain flair to it. But the reason for bringing this up is to think about what if the negative world for Christianity or for Reformed Protestantism or for confessional Presbyterianism, and if for anyone watching these lectures who doesn't know what confessional Presbyterianism is that will become clearer over the course of these these lectures. But what if this negative world started well before 2014? Was America friendly to confessional Presbyterianism in Machen's lifetime? What if before Rod Dreher there was a J. Gressa Machen? Um, and I would am prepared to argue that well before Rod Dreher came along with the Benedict Option, there was a Machen option. The Machen option was to eventually found other institutions to try to pass on the Reformed faith, especially church-related institutions like seminaries, missionary agencies, and even a new communion of Presbyterians. Um, so that's one way of trying to think about how we remember Machen. Machen as a fighter, did he fight too early? Probably not, I would argue. And um, that's one way of trying to situate Machen in thinking about how we remember him. But to complete this, um, this idea of how we remember him, it may be useful to remind ourselves of um, how people remembered Machen when he died. Some of the obituaries written about Machen are really quite stunning, especially since they're written by people who were outsiders. Now, sometimes outsiders aren't as invested in the controversy, so they can be a little bit more generous, but they can also sometimes reveal insights about someone that people either who were opposed to Machen inside the Presbyterian Church or on Machen's side in the Presbyterian Church will have missed. One of these um, figures who wrote about Machen very positively after he died was Pearl S. Buck, who wound up being one of Machen's foes during the Presbyterian, the missionary phase of the Presbyterian controversy in the 1930s, which we will come to several lectures down the line. She was a um, Pulitzer Prize winning author of the novel The Good Earth, written in 1932 about uh, China. And she was a daughter of a Southern Presbyterian missionary to China. She knew the situation there relatively well. She also lost the faith. So she wasn't exactly inclined to think highly of the way the Presbyterian missions had been conducted at a certain point. But for the New Republic, she wrote the following, and I'll quote from a couple paragraphs uh, from her, I guess you would call it an obituary, but it's a piece that she wrote after Machen died. Uh, the New York Times, she writes, a few days ago brought the 
the news of the death of J. Gresson Machen, the fighting fundamentalist. See, there it is. He's a fighter, although I try to say he's not a fundamentalist. <clears throat> I never knew him, but somehow it is a shock to read of his death. I find I am sorry he is dead, though I never thought of him when he was alive except to find occasional enjoyment in his doings when I read of him in the papers. I feel a sense of his loss knowing that now that he is gone where he need no longer fight because presumably everyone in heaven will agree with him. I hope if he is now where he thought he would be that he is not bored with the eternal peace. So she's having a little fun with Machen as a fighter. But she goes on. The church has lost, has lost a colorful figure and a mind which stimulated by its constant contrary activities. <clears throat> he added life to the church, and it, le it needs life, and we have all lost something in him. We have lost a man whom our times can ill spare, a man who had convictions which were real to him and who fought for those convictions and held to them through every change in time and human thought. There was a power in him which was positive in its very negations. He was worth a hundred of his fellows who, as princes of the church, occupy easy places and play their church politics and trim their sails to every wind, who in their smug observance of the conventions of life and religion offend all honest and search searching spirits. No forthright mind can live among them, neither the honest skeptic nor the honest dogmatist. I wish... Dr. Machen had lived to go on fighting them. That was published January 20th, 1937, uh, roughly 19 days after Machen's death. It's curious in that, uh, that those lines that Buck uh, writes about the, um, the princes of the church who occupy easy places and play their church politics. Try to keep that in mind when we get to the struggles over Princeton Seminary in the late 1920s, uh, whether some of those people were uh, occupying easy places then. Um, but Buck had a sense of church politics. She herself was a skeptic. She had left the church herself, but still has ad admiration for Machen as a fighter. Um, but then probably the greatest obituary, and this is where I can actually say Mencken without confusing it with Machen. H.L. Mencken wrote a, um, a column about Machen after Machen's death, January of 1937. Uh, that is, it, it's, a, it's, it's one of the first pieces I read by Ma Mencken that made me think something was, th something was, um, was intriguing about Mencken and deserved further scrutiny. But he also hits a number of really significant points about Machen that uh, I, I think are useful for, again, for thinking about how we remember Machen. Mencken wrote, The Reverend J. Gerson Machen, who died out in North Dakota on New Year's Day, got on the whole a bad press while he lived, and even his obituaries did much less than justice to him. To newspaper reporters, 
As to other antinomians, a combat between Christians over a matter of dogma is essentially a comic affair. And in consequence, Dr. Machen's heroic struggles to save Calvinism and the Republic were usually depicted in ribald or at all events in somewhat skeptical terms. The generality of readers, I suppose, gathered thereby the notion that he was simply another fundamentalist on the order of William Jennings Bryan and the Simeon faithful of Appalachia. But he was actually a man of great learning and what is more of sharp intelligence. The contrast there with Bryan is, is also intriguing because one of, the, one of the meanest things that Mencken ever wrote was about William Jennings Bryan only five days after Bryan died uh, and they just had a set to at the, at the Scopes trial. But more on that in lectures ahead. Mencken goes on, What caused Machen to quit Princeton and found a seminary of his own was his complete inability as a theologian to square the disingenuous evasions of modernism with the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. He saw clearly that the only effects that could follow diluting and polluting Christianity in the modernist manner would be its complete abandonment and ruin. Either it was true or it was not true. If, as he believed, it was true, then there could be no compromise with the persons who sought to whittle away its essential postulates, however respectable their motives. Thus he fell out with the reformers who have been trying in late years to convert the Presbyterian Church into a kind of literary and social club devoted vaguely to good works. It's a really useful summary of mainline Protestantism in my estimation, a kind of literary and social club devoted vaguely to good works. Most of the other Protestant churches have gone the same way, but Dr. Machen's attention as a Presbyterian, yay, was naturally concentra concentrated upon his own connection. His one and only purpose was to hold it resolutely to what he conceived to be the true faith. When that enterprise met with opposition, he fought vigorously, and though he lost in the end and was forced out of Princeton, it must be manifest that he marched off to Philadelphia with all the honors of war. Mencken goes on, My interest in Dr. Machen while he lived, though it was large, was not personal, for I never had the honor of meeting him, even though they lived in the same city, grew up in the same city. And I think there were actually family members who tried to sort of organize some kind of meeting between the two. It never happened. Mencken goes on, Moreover, the doctrine that he preached seemed to me, and still seems to me, to be excessively dubious. I stand much more chance of being converted to spiritualism, to Christian science, or even to the New Deal than to Calvinism, which occupies a place in my cabinet of private horrors, but little removed from that of cannibalism. Another great line, because it connotes this image of a row of books on different topics with filed alphabetically, there is Calvinism right next to cannibalism. But, he goes on, Dr. Machen had the same clear right to believe in it that I have to disbelieve in it, and though I could not yield to his reasoning, I could at least admire, and did greatly admire, his remarkable clarity and cogency as an apologist, allowing him his primary assumptions. <clears throat> and then one last paragraph, which is, again, 
Mencken's assessment of modernism, which again strikes me as being very astute. What the modernists have done, no doubt with the best intentions in the world, is they have tried to get rid of the logical difficulties of religion and yet preserve a generally pious cast of mind. It is a vain enterprise. What they have left once they have achieved their imprudent scavenging is hardly more than a row of hollow platitudes as empty of psychological force and effect as so many, so many nursery rhymes. They may be good people, and they may even be contented and happy, but they are no more religious than Dr. Einstein. Religion is self, something else again. In Heinrich, Henrik Ibsen's phrase, something far more deep-down diving and mud-upbringing. Dr. Machen tried to impress that obvious fact upon his fellow adherents of the Geneva Mohammed. <laughs> That's Calvin, in case you didn't catch that reference. But he was undoubtedly right. That was from the Baltimore Sun, January 18, 1937. So those are two people that Machen did not convince, but still thought highly of him in his abilities as a fighter as, and, as a, and as an apologist. So one last point to summarize this now is to think about just situating Machen as a Presbyterian. Uh, I think it makes the most sense to see him as a Presbyterian, not as a fundamentalist, not as an evangelical. He was ordained. He was a church member. He devoted most of his life to serving in the Presbyterian church. So it doesn't make any sense to try to move him into some other category. Not to say that there is an overlap between evangelicalism and Presbyterianism, but still Machen was laboring with Presbyterian convictions foremost in our minds, and that was the best way, he believed, from, from which he could serve uh, the wider body of, of the church. So <clears throat> he was an American Presbyterian, though, obviously. He's not Scottish, not Irish, not English, not um, uh, Canadian, which is kind of interesting to think about. The OPC now has congregations that are in Canada. I happen to be in a presbytery that has, is called the Presbytery of Michigan and Ontario. Um, and Canadian Presbyterianism is very different from American Presbyterianism, even though Machen actually tried to help the Canadian Presbyterian Church for, for moments of his, of his life because Presbyterians from Canada would study at Princeton. Um, but two major episodes that is worth considering with American Presbyterianism, and these both have to do with the revivals, and this is where it gets into how to figure out Presbyterianism in relation to evangelicalism. The first phase of this reckoning, as it were, is the old side, new side controversy that lasted from 1741 to 1758 and coincided with the first pretty good awakening. Not great, pretty good awakening. Um, and here you have the emergence of an old side group that was anti-revival. One of the ironies of this history is that Machen was tried by the presbytery. He was a member of the presbytery that was actually created during the first pretty good awakening as the place to try to get the revivalists herd them into one presbytery to keep them from moving around and disrupting other presbyteries. That was the Presbytery of New Brunswick, created for Gilbert Tennant and others, but that was the presbytery that eventually, spoiler alert, brought Machen to trial. 
the second phase of revivalism comes with the new school, old school controversy that saw the old school, new school split between 1837 and 1869, at least in the Northern Church. Machen comes from the old school branch of American Presbyterianism because Princeton was very much on the side of the old school controversy and carried on a tradition of teaching theology and defending Reformed theology for over 100 years, remarkable run in the history of seminary education. Um, that's where Machen received his education, uh, taught, and the tradition with which he identified. And in my estimation, not enough people have paid enough attention to what old school Presbyterianism was as a way of trying to make sense of Machen and why he fought. And the typical definition of pres old school Presbyterianism is to look at three characteristics. It's strict in its Calvinist soteriology, particularly with regard to sus subscribing the Westminster Confession and catechisms. So they were eager to be strict subscriptionists. Not all of them, but many of them, especially the people writing, uh, working, teaching at seminaries. Secondly, the old school emphasized Presbyterian church polity or Presbyterian government uh, and as the proper means of overseeing the work of ministry. <clears throat> and then thirdly, they had a conception of, of piety that again was much more geared to Reformed or Presbyterian sensibilities than to evangelicalism. So, for instance, you will find old school Presbyterians writing against organs in the church. Uh, they believed in, in a cappella singing. Uh, they believed in standing for prayer. Um, one of the Princeton faculty argued that it was proper to stand in prayer to show respect for God. Uh, Sabbath observance, which would have been fairly characteristic of many American Christians, even Roman Catholics, but Presbyterians put, took, took that more seriously longer than others. Um, and they were uh, against, oftentimes, revival songs. So there are various aspects of old-school Presbyterian piety that Machen grew up with, although I'll say more in another lecture about the ways in which even that was beginning to wobble during his uh, upbringing at the church in Baltimore where he attended with his and was a member with his family. So overall, this is a way of thinking about how we remember Machen. We remember him as a fighter, uh, that's how people knew him in his time and respected him for it. Uh, and old school Presbyterianism is the key that I think unlocks the door of, of Machen's fighting.